before we turn in God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer. Holy Father, you truly are the strength and the refuge of your people. One, and as you are doing that, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Gospel Project. So we're in, this morning we're, we're starting a new series through the book of Joshua. You can find Joshua towards the front of your Bible, just after the book of Deuteronomy and before the book of Judges. Now, uh, I have a little confession to make. Um, I love museums. Uh, I know that's a little dusty and, and boring, but I really do. I have always loved them. Uh, and I think the reason I've loved, I love them so much is because museums have a way of telling a story of how we got to where we are. Uh, you can learn a lot of history simply by reading a book or maybe watching a reputable documentary or surfing YouTube. But uh, when you get to a museum, you actually get to see the physical evidence of what happened. It's as if history comes alive. It becomes tangible as you make your way through the displays. The, the parts and the pieces that played a role uh, just cease to be this, these arbitrary ideas, and then they're right there. And that's a powerful thing to experience, and I think that's why I've always loved museums. Um, when I was in college, one of my classes got the opportunity to go and visit the Museum of the Bible, which uh, at that time was a traveling museum that was, it was an exhibit that was making its way around the country, and now it's permanently located in Washington, D.C. Uh, they had an impressive collection of biblical documents displayed in all these different exhibits explaining the details of how the Bible got to be where it is today. Um, my favorite display in the whole place, um, there was some pretty interesting stuff. They had a, a full working uh, Gutenberg printing press that they were printing off sheets of paper and showing you what it would have looked like. That was cool. Uh, they had a Bible that was, uh, that, that was, in, it was a gift from Yasser Arafat. Uh, to some other world leader, it was the cover was embedded with 24 karat gold. It was beautiful, but my favorite display in the whole place was a little copy of a Greek translation of the Old Testament that went back to like 200. It was very, very old, and uh, I was learning Greek at the time. And, uh, and while it was my Hebrew professor who had actually organized the trip, he and I were actually able to stand there and to translate the words off the page that they had turned this little book to. And it was, uh, it was from Psalm 109 and Psalm 110. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had because it wasn't just that we were reading God's Word. That, and that in itself, you can have that experience with the Bible that's sitting in front of you. But this Bible was, was one that believers from, from the 200s had read and been encouraged and suddenly it felt like I was linked to them because I was reading the same letters that they had looked at so many years ago. Uh, that book ceased to become an artifact to me. It was a testimony of the inheritance that each and every one of us have in our hands right now. The truth of God that stands forever. Now, if you must know, uh, it read the exact same way that your Bible reads. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's an important thing. Uh, the record of that inheritance, uh, and while the, uh, it was, was important, and while the pages of that little book may fade away and dissolve in the dust one day, it's a reminder that the king and his inheritance 
that which it speaks of will stand forever as our hope and our joy and as our glory and as our rest. Well, the book of Joshua is in many ways like a museum that displays the physical evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. It tells the story of how God did everything that he said he was going to do when he first called Abraham out of the land of Ur and told him he was going to make him the father of many nations and that through him the world would be blessed. The book of Joshua records the physical evidence of how the nation of Israel came into the land It accounts for the way that God distributed that land to the different tribes of Israel. It identifies God as the king and the warrior who delivered his people. It celebrates God for his faithfulness as the great covenant keeper. And it anticipates and looks forward to King Jesus, the true king, who brings rest and peace to his people. Joshua is more than just a link between what happened after Israel came out of Egypt and then actually settled in the land of promise. It's more than just a book of battles. It's a book about the deliverance of God's people and God's commitment to making his presence dwell with his people. Joshua, the book of Joshua, stands as a monument to the covenant faithfulness and the power of God that directs us to the new and better Joshua, Jesus Christ, who brings redemption, freedom, and inheritance to his people through his own death and resurrection, which God had spoken about all the way back uh, in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve when they first sinned. Now, the book of Joshua ends pretty well. But Joshua was never meant to be the end of the story. Like the rest of the Old Testament, this book is a shadow of greater things to come, things which were realized and fulfilled when Jesus came to to bring peace to his people. As the author of Hebrews writes, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, we're starting in this new series through Joshua. We're, we're not going to finish the book of Joshua before the end of the fall. So we'll probably do about halfway, and then we'll pick this up next fall. Um, but my goal for our time in this book, specifically, is to show you how the book of Joshua teaches us to trust the God who delivers. And it's to point you to the, the one who fulfills God's covenant promises in a much greater, much fuller way. Joshua points us to Jesus, who ironically actually bears the same name that Joshua does. Um, The Greek for Jesus that we translate Jesus is Yeshua, which is the what, that's how you make Joshua Greek. So there you go. We have a connection here. My goal in this time here is to explore that connection and to encourage you with the mighty acts of God in this book. Let's begin by reading our passage. If you would please stand once more for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. 
from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Praise be to God. If you would please, um, please be seated. Well, the main point of my sermon this morning, and I think the main point of our text simply is this, that as a people of faith, let your strength and your confidence rest in the power and in the presence of God. As a people of faith, let your strength and your confidence rest in the power and in the presence of of God. I have two points for you this morning. Um, they are simply this and they build on one another. God, first is, God calls his people to do impossible things. God calls his people to do impossible things. Secondly, God equips his people for those tasks by giving them himself. God equips his people for the impossible by giving them himself. Now, I feel like the time that we've spent over the past four weeks going through 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, I have really done a good job of preparing us for this series in Joshua. We've seen that God is the keeper of his people, and that as a right response, God's people are to strive to keep themselves in him and in his love, taking hold of those means of grace that we uh, studied last week uh, in which God has provided for us to do through Christ. The book of Joshua catalogs these two important truths, that God is the Savior and the Deliverer of his people, and that his people are called to live their lives in due response in his grace, and they are called to be walking in the truth. Now this book, we may call this the book of Joshua, it may be called by Joshua's name, but Joshua is not the main character of this book. God is. God is the one who is acting to bring Israel into the land. God is the one who is securing the people in their inheritance and in their peace. God is the one who is fulfilling the covenant promises that he made to Adam, Abraham, and Moses. Still, as we study this book, we're going to find that Israel had a responsibility to live in response to the great acts of God's deliverance. Israel was called to keep God's commands. And having finished our time in Jude last week, 
exploring the relationship between God's sovereignty and the, our due responsibility as his people, I think we're really in a good place to venture into this book, the book of Joshua, a book that both calls uh, God's people into action and which directs us to find rest from our work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua, in short, is, is more than a book of history, although it is that. It's a book about faith. And we have a great deal to learn from this book uh, as we consider how we have been called to live in the covenant promises that we've received through King Jesus. So first we want to look at how God, uh, the fact that God calls his people to do impossible things. If you were to Google uh, this uh, the motivational, uh, if you were to Google motivational verses, I think that Joshua 1 would probably be at the top of the list. It is so easy to just start reading this, go down to verse 6, start, start hanging your hat on verses like that. Be strong and courageous. I mean, those are words of encouragement. Those are words that belong on the wall of a workout gym or in, in this, in the, on the side of a soldier's helmet. The, the thing is, though, that the book of Joshua opens up with some dark events. We read that Moses, the first sentence in the book of Joshua is a simple statement that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, is dead. And the time has come for his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, to lead the people of God into war to take the land of the promise. The book of Joshua actually begins and it ends with funerals. Now, there's a sense in which you can read verse 1 simply as, as the natural way you would tie the end of Deuteronomy, which tells us that Moses died, uh, to the next events of how the people went into the land. It's a natural progression. But I think that it's, it's written here, and we're meant to read this and ponder the gravity of that statement before we go anywhere else into this book. The world has seen many great and godly men. Uh, to this point, we've seen Noah, Enoch, Abraham, uh, but above all, Scripture holds Moses in highest regard. Deuteronomy ends with this editorial which describes Moses like this. It says, There has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Throughout the rest of Israel's history, God raised up many more righteous men and women, great prophets like Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you could go on and on. But there was not found among them a man like Moses. Moses is referred to here in verse 1 as the servant of the Lord. That is a title which is very rarely given. It is a title that is given once to Joshua at the end of the book. David is twice called the servant of the Lord in the Psalms, and Israel is once referred to as the servant of the Lord. Moses, on the other hand, is called the servant of the Lord a whopping 14 times. When you read that Moses is dead, it should twist your stomach. Israel mourned Moses for 30 days straight. 
Moses had a special relationship with God. Not only had God appointed him to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, but God had given Israel his good and perfect law through Moses. Moses was the law giver. Moses was also the regular intercessor for the nation of Israel. He had a unique and wonderful relationship with God. Uh, We're told that he would go into the tent of meeting and that he would speak to God there the way a man speaks with his friend. That is an astonishing legacy. Moses is not called the servant of the Lord uh, for no reason. When the book of Joshua begins... The nation of Israel is standing on the threshold of the land that God had promised to give them all the way back in the days of Abraham. We've been waiting for this moment for 600 years. And just as the people are gearing up, ready to roll out, ready to go and take this land, we're told that Moses died. In fact, verses 1 and 2 really treat Moses' death like a starting gun. It's as if because Moses is dead, now the people can go in. Now, humanly speaking, losing Moses like that right before you're about to embark on this great crusade into the promised land spells total disaster for the people of Israel. It's not that we doubt Joshua or his leadership or his skill as a warrior, but as Numbers Numbers says, no one was like Moses. God was with Moses in a special way. And now that he's dead, uh, we're all left wondering, how is this going to work out? How is Israel going to receive this land of promise? Now, if the Green Bay Packers lost Aaron Rodgers the day before they were supposed to go play the Super Bowl, I don't think many of us would have high hopes for the outcome of the game. When, When nations lose their most important leaders, they are left vulnerable and open to attack. So what are we to make here of the fact that Moses had died and then God commissions the people to go in? What are we to make of that? Well, I think first that we're reminded that God takes his holiness very seriously. The timing of Moses' death isn't accidental. Despite all of the good and the mighty works that God had done through Moses to Israel and in the sight of the whole world, uh, and, and in spite of the fact that he really overall, his, the life he lived was lived in the fear of the Lord, we see that in Numbers 20, God forbade Moses from entering the promised land because of the way he acted at, at a place called Meribah. When the people of Israel were there, they grumbled over the fact that they needed water. And God told Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses struck the rock with his staff in anger at the people, and he struck it twice. And because of that, God told Moses, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So God gave this task instead Uh, to Moses' assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun. The second thing I think we're supposed to notice here is that God's purposes to keep his covenant promises are bigger than any one person, even when that person is as staggeringly amazing as Moses. In our zeal to do the work of ministry that God has called us to do, it's easy to forget that God doesn't depend on us to see his promises through. He graciously, graciously involves us in his work. 
He has set apart good works for us to do, to work out the faith that is within us with trembling and reverence and abounding joy. But we must guard ourselves from thinking too highly of ourselves. Ministry can be as edifying as it can be a source of pride or an idol. We may easily begin to treat the stations that God has given us as something that uh, brings value to us. We may allow our identity to get wrapped up in that thing. We may forget that those things, those opportunities are a gift from God, and we may begin to treasure those things above him, which is idolatry. It's a terrible thing to do, and it's, it's a thing that we all risk. When uh, we went on vacation, it is impossible for me, I found that it is impossible for, impossible for me to go on vacation and not wonder what's going to happen that Sunday morning and, and not worry about if I'm not there to put out fires or to make sure this is taken care of. Uh, so vacation is not always relaxing. And my wise wife told me, before we left, the church and the success of the church is not yours to ensure. And that's something to remember. It's something to remember when God takes friends to other places and they leave on good terms, but you miss them. And you know that the fact that they're gone is going to be felt. It is encouraging to know that God's covenant purposes are bigger than you or me. And he will see his purposes through. The book of Joshua isn't a story about how Joshua arose to the occasion and took the land of Canaan. It's a record of how God raised him up at a specific time and a specific place to manifest his glory for the whole world to see. And Joshua got to participate in that. We've been waiting on Israel to go and take the possession of this land that God had promised Abraham for a long time. God was not about to allow Moses' failure to get in the way of his perfect and good plan to fulfill that covenant promise. And that's something for us to remember as we wait on the day when Jesus will fulfill his very great kingdom promises. God doesn't need any one of us to accomplish the mission of making Jesus famous in the nations. But he has called us to that mission nonetheless. God didn't fail when he said he was going to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And he won't fail in that greater sense of that covenant which he was making to Abraham's offspring, which we learned from Paul in Galatians 3 was a reference to Christ, a, to make him a blessing to the whole world. The reason Joshua 1 sounds like a starting gun, even though it begins with a funeral, is because God's covenant faithfulness never, ever stops. And though there was never a prophet in all of Israel's history like Moses until the coming of Jesus, God was still going to see his covenant promises through. And so we see he calls Joshua to this task. Moses' lowly assistant, he calls him to the plate and he says, Buckle up, son. I'm going to use you to see these things through. The land was never going to be given to the people because of Moses. It was going to be given because God had determined to show his glory by doing it himself. God was the one who had determined to secure that land of promise for Israel because he's that committed to making the glory of his presence dwell with his people. And that's something that you and I have to be regularly reminded of 
When we remember that God, it is God who is determined to exalt his glory in the midst of his people, it keeps us from falling into a depression when things don't work out the way we expect them to. So with those two doctrines in place, let's look at the three tasks that God gives to Joshua in the wake of Moses' death. And as we look at them, I think what we will see is that these three tasks are impossible for Joshua to have done in his own power. And so the goal here is to see the bankruptcy of Joshua and to see that reflected in our own. And then we'll see how God equips us for the tasks that he calls us to. So first, the first thing that we see God call Joshua to is that he calls Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land to take possession of it. Make no mistake, this was not going to be an easy task. There were many nations with many kings living in the land that God says he's giving to Israel. It isn't as if the place is vacant. Israel's not going to just get to move in. They're going to have to fight for this. And Joshua is going to have to lead the armies of Israel into battle against seasoned warriors and mighty cities. Now, I don't want to downplay Joshua's skill as a warrior. At this point, he's already an accomplished general who had led Israel into success on the battlefield in the past. But if you read about the battles that Joshua fought in, the Bible never credits Joshua's skill as the reason Israel won. The victory is always credited to God. And as we press into the different events that happen in the book of Joshua, we're going to see that that's the same pattern. As we listen to hear to what God says to Joshua in this passage, we realize the situation of, of God's faithfulness is going to have to be the same here. God says that he is the one who's going to give this land to Joshua and to the people. And even still, we recognize that Joshua has an important role to play in what God is doing. In verse 6, God tells him, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, the second impossible task that God calls Joshua to do comes in verse 7, where God tells Joshua that he must keep the law of Moses. God says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law, or be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to it all that is written in it. For then you will will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The law of the Lord is good. The law of the Lord lays out a pattern for holy living. But the law of the Lord is not able to justify anyone Because while it brings knowledge of sin, it is weakened by our flesh because we are not able to keep it. Remember, Moses was not allowed to enter the land of promise, the land of rest, because he did not believe God and failed to revere God's holiness before the people. The law of Moses itself anticipated that fallen humans like Joshua and like us would fail. God provided a system of sacrifice in the law where sin could be atoned for because God knew that it was a standard that was higher than what people could keep. Joshua himself understood how incapable people are of keeping God's perfect commands. At the end of his life, we'll see that he called Israel together and he spoke to them and he told them to fear the Lord and to serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. And when the people piously said, we will do it all, Joshua looked at them and said, You are not able to serve the Lord.
for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done good to you. Joshua had a real, deep and a realistic understanding of, of human depravity, of the, of the effect that sin has on the human condition. He knew the demands of the law, and he knew the depth of sinful nature. As he received this word from God, with, with the weeping of Israel over Moses still ringing in his ears, he would not have heard this lightly. Notice that whereas God told Joshua to be strong and courageous as he leads these people into battle, he tells Joshua to be strong and very courageous as he considered how he was to battle against the evil desires of his own heart. Unless Joshua did this, he would not be fit to lead the people of Israel into even the smallest skirmish. The third impossible task that God called Joshua to was simply to be strong and courageous as he assumed leadership and led the people into Canaan. Courage and strength aren't things that you can just muster up simply by sheer force of will. Leaders have to be confident, but confidence will only get you so far. So if Joshua is going to lead the tribes of Israel into war, if he's going to keep a careful watch in his own soul to ensure that he doesn't deviate from God's commands, he has to have strength and courage in something other than himself. These three tasks that God appointed to Joshua draw our attention to the power of God and the faithfulness of God, even as they expose how bankrupt and powerless we are in and of ourselves. Three times the Lord commanded, uh, commanded Joshua to be strong and courageous. In verse 9, he tells Joshua, Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Which means God knew how impossible these tasks really were for Joshua to do in and of his own power. Before we can appreciate the power of God and the wisdom of God, before we can act with faithful obedience, we must be brought to the end of ourselves. We must see that we have nothing in ourselves that can appease God, that can render us justified before God. Just as a, a branch receives life and bears fruit because of the sap that flows to it from the trunk, so God's people receive life and bear fruit of faithfulness as they are united to Christ, as His power works its way through them and in them. This is the purpose of God's law. Uh, the law shows us what a life rightly ordered looks like before God. It shows us what holiness is, and then it convicts us of the fact that we are incapable of bearing that fruit of holiness in and of ourselves because sin has severed us from a right relationship with God. The law says, live this way. But even as we try to the best of our ability, all we're really able to present to God is a gross masterpiece of disappointment. We need divine power to equip us from these things. And this is what brings us to our second point. God equips us for the task he assigns to us by giving us himself. God equips us by giving us himself. If you do any sort, if uh, if you do any sort of manual labor, then you'll recognize how important it is to have the right tools for the job. God called Joshua to do some things that were impossible for him to do on his own. God didn't just call Joshua to these tasks. He also equipped him to do those things fundamentally by giving him himself. And that's the reason why this passage is really just so encouraging. 
It shows us how God has provided for his people to walk on the path of faith. In the time that we have this left this morning, what I want to do is I want to highlight three ways that God has equipped his people to succeed in the task that he's called us to do. First, we see here that God reminds us of us of his unshakable covenant promises. God equips us to succeed by reminding us of his covenant promises. When God told Joshua to arise and to go over to the Jordan with all the people, there is no confusion about the fact that God was the one who was going to accomplish all of this and that he was going to, be, he was going to do this because he always keeps his word. In verse 3, God tells Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I, I, will, I have given you. And then he says this, Just as I promised Moses. God made a promise to Moses, and he says, I'm going to keep it. Moses, my servant, is dead, but I keep my promises. And then in verse 6, God goes even further back to show that he remembered what he had swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the patriarchs of the Israel nation. He says that he's going to make the tribes of Israel inherit the land that he had sworn to their fathers. You can't really understand the significance of the book of Joshua if you don't read it in light of God's kingdom covenants. A covenant is a strong and enduring agreement that binds two parties in a relationship of certain obligation towards each other. It is relationship-driven. And you can read about God's covenant with Abraham where he makes these promises in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. I would encourage you to do that this week. If we look at Genesis 17, we see that God declared that he was going to bless Abraham and his offspring, that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. They would be special to him. He told Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan as part of the benefits of this covenant. So this land, in a way, is a representative, not just of God's covenant, God's faithfulness, not just a plot of land that he told Abraham, one day you'll have this, but it's a representative of the whole faithfulness of God and the whole of the, the covenant God had made. So when God speaks to Joshua in verse 5, we actually see that he repeats the same boundaries of land that he had told Abraham he was going to give, indicating that the land that Joshua and the people were taking possession of was the land that was included in God's promise. The reason this display of God's covenant faithfulness is so important for you and for me is that it makes the point that God never fails to keep his word. The covenant that God references as he speaks about the inheritance of the people, were about, uh, what they were about to receive, plays an important role in the overall salvation story that we read in the Bible. In Christ, God has secured a new and a better covenant, one that's not centered on a piece of land in the Middle East, but which is focused on the entire world. What's more, this new covenant we see brings a peace and an inheritance that, that Joshua and the people who entered the land of Canaan never really got to experience to the full. Uh, the author of Hebrews uh, makes this abundantly clear in Hebrews 3 and 4. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says that something better has arrived in Christ than what Joshua and the people received. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
And then he goes on uh, to encourage believers the way that John and Jude encouraged their readers to contend for their faith and to walk in the truth. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, which is the disobedience of those who had come out of Egypt and who were consumed in judgment in the wilderness. When we were making our way through Jude, we saw that God is the, co- is the keeper of his people. If you have trusted in Christ to save you, then you have this confidence. This confidence is yours. God says he will keep you until the day when he presents you blameless before the holiness of his presence with great joy. The biblical covenants form in many ways the background of the story of how God has accomplished the salvation of the world. And they stand as pillars that testify to the faithfulness of God. So while the Bible calls each and every one of us to make our calling and election sure by living in response to the obedience of Christ and the faith that lives within us, we know that ultimately our salvation stands because the word of God and his promises never fail. And that is a confidence that we can take into every circumstance. That is the confidence that we can have when jobs don't work out. That is the confidence we can have when loved ones pass away. That is the confidence we can have when the threat of war is on the horizon. The secret to contentment in the midst of uncertainty, the secret to having courage when we are called into action, isn't to trust ourselves, but it is to trust the covenant faithfulness of Christ, the covenant that he has established at the cost of his own blood. Now, the second way that we see God equips his people for this impossible task is with his own presence. He equips his people with his own presence. Look at verse 5, where God promises Joshua that he will succeed against everyone who comes against him. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then in verse 9, God says this. He says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And this is why. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now it is one thing to know that God is faithful to keep his promises. It is another thing to hear God say to you, I am with you. There is nothing sweeter than the joy of abiding in the presence of God. The presence of God with his uh, the presence of God brings strength and courage to God's people. The presence of God is what gives God's people confidence that we will succeed in what he has called us to do. God calls his people to do the impossible, but he does not expect us to hurdle the challenges of this life on our own power or to do so alone. He says that he will be with us, and this is the reason we know that we'll succeed in the task that he has called us to do. God's message to Joshua wasn't to be strong and courageous, and then God would bless him. It wasn't, Joshua, be strong and courageous, and somehow you'll make it to heaven. It would be wrong to read God's command to Joshua as some sort of motivational speech to just get him to pull himself up by his bootstraps. It was a message to be strong and to be courageous because God said he would be with Joshua. And therefore, Joshua knew that he would succeed in every endeavor that God had commanded him to do. 
In Psalm 23, David celebrates the steadfast and faithful care that God shows his people. He writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Then in Matthew 28, as Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world to go and to to make disciples of all peoples and all nations, he says this, he assures them with this, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's an abiding presence that King Jesus has with his people regardless of whether they are with or without. God is there. Jesus promises his presence to us, even as we see him promising his presence to Joshua. Paul, case in point, Paul told Timothy that when everyone else had abandoned him and he was in a jail cell ready to die, he says this, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And he goes on, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence? Do your fears get a hold of your heart and make you disobey? That's the way sin works. Fear is an assault on the confidence of faith. And we fight that fear by remembering that the Lord is our stronghold who goes with us. That he is there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So God is the strength and the courage of his people. Not only does he ensure that he will accomplish everything he's promised because he always keeps his word, but he assures us by dwelling with us and going with us as he sends us out even if it's in to the lion's den. Now Joshua 1, 1 through 9, isn't meant to stir any of you to try to earn God's favor by being bold and courageous. It's a call to you to see that you can't do it, but that God can because he's good and because he's faithful and because not one word of God falls to the ground void. So this is a call of faith, a call to rely on the power and the wisdom of God as we dwell in the presence of God. It is a call to abandon your desires, to abandon your understanding, to embrace bigger and better things, things that are only found in the presence of God, which he promises us in Christ will always be with us. That is good, good news. That is good news when the doctors can't figure out what's wrong with your mom. That is good news when retirement investments tank. That is good news when the fear of a pandemic strikes. Because no matter what happens, we know that God is with his people and he will equip them for every good work and that he will deliver us to his eternal kingdom. To him be the glory. The only way to have true strength and true courage is by faith in him. So we've seen two ways that God equips us. The third way we see that God equips his people for the task is that he... He gives us his word. 
He gives us his divine word. Notice that while God draws Joshua's attention to his covenant faithfulness, and while he emphasizes to Joshua that he will succeed because he's going with him, he also tells Joshua, he commands Joshua, to live his life by the standard of divine revelation. He tells Joshua to be very careful to do according to all of the law that Moses had commanded him. Furthermore, God tells Joshua that he is to cling to this word. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Uh, Joshua's vocabulary is to be shaped and, and molded. His tongue should be imprinted with gospel truths. He says, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. God has not left it up to us to reason out what his will is. He's revealed it. And, and God called, as God called Joshua into action, and as he gave him these very great promises, he also charged Joshua to abide by, in his word, to live by his word. This charge was a reminder to Joshua to obey everything that he had already commanded in Deuteronomy 6. He tells Joshua that the only way he can expect to thrive in the center of God's presence is if he keeps his way in the truth. And so he tells him to treasure his word. It's by keeping God's word that Joshua can expect to succeed and thrive as he embarks on this great mission with God's people. God's word is precious and powerful. It is not truth among truths. It is the truth. God's blessings are experienced in our lives as he applies his word to us by the power of his spirit. Over the past two weeks, we've seen how the confidence of our hope rests in God alone. But we've also seen that as God's people, we're called to take hold of the means of grace he's provided for us. And so we see here that yet again in the book of Joshua. God's word is what tells us about God's covenant faithfulness. God's word is what assures us that God is with us and that he will be with us to the end. God's word is what teaches us to deny ourselves and to regard our lives as a humble offering of praise to God. Nothing, I hope, I, I, pray, I pray diligently for this, uh, nothing that I have told you these points are things that I have just conjured up in my own wisdom. These, this is the wisdom that God has given you as his people even now. So we ought to take hold of God's word and to live our lives by it, expecting him to hold up his end of this covenant promises, which he always does. God told Joshua to treat his word with reverence, he called him to take action, to, to seize hold of it, and to never let it go. And I think that there is something we can learn from the way that God tells Joshua to cling to his word like this. I don't, want, I don't want to just tell you all, just read your Bibles more. I feel like that is a trite application that just goes over your heads because you go, oh yeah, I'll try harder this week. I don't want to tell you just to go read your Bibles more, although I do want to hear that you are doing it. I want to hear that you have a, a vibrant life in God's word. And I want to encourage you in light of what we've seen from God's word in Joshua to start seeing the Bible not just as something you ought to do as, as a box to just check off the list but to see it as something that is absolutely necessary and crucial to your daily life the way, the way you, that, that breath is essential for you to live day in day out. How can we be comforted with the knowledge of God's faithfulness if we don't study how he's proved himself time and time again? How can we learn to feel God's presence if we are deaf to his word? How can we have strength 
and courage to follow Christ into tough situations if we've not been directed by him and assured that he goes with us. The path of a believer's life isn't something that's to be lived passively. It takes courage and strength. A courage and strength that's not found in any one of us, but which is found in Christ alone. In the covenant that he established at the cost of his own blood and in his abiding presence, which he has promised will be with us to the end. It's a relationship and an experience that I think we see anticipated here in Joshua, which is finally and fully realized as we rest now in the work of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we stand in your presence this morning, humbly asking that you would not allow these words to just enter our minds and to leave as we leave the building. And we pray, Father, that these words would affect us. And we know, Father, that this is something that you have to do because we have no power to do it of ourselves. But Father, you've promised us some things here to assure us that as your people, you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And you call us to trust you. And so, Father, we want to confess right now that we trust you. And we ask that you would do this great work of which we ask. By your spirit, Father, apply your word and lead us in the way of righteousness. I pray, Father, that as we do, we would be faithful ambassadors of the truth and that King Jesus would be exalted in us and that we would walk in a way that pleases you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great message as we reflect on first just the element of who we are and who we belong to. Please stand with me and sing this song, Take My Life and Let It Be. Concentrate it, Lord, for thee. And as you sing it, once again, just think about what you are doing every day and what you ought to be doing is giving your life, your every breath. Even though you, you have no control over whether you are breathing the next breath, you are choosing just say, God, the next breath is yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. At the impulse of thy love Take my feet and let them be Swift and beautiful for thee Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Always only for my King Take my silver and my gold Not all my would I withhold Take my moments and my days Let them flow in ceaseless praise Let them flow in ceaseless praise
endless praise. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. As we come now uh, to our time to observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it is worth taking a moment about how the ordinances that we're about to take reflect the message of Joshua 1, 1 1 through 9. Uh, This morning we've seen that the strength and the courage of God's people comes from his presence with us. And Jesus intended for this to be an ordinance that pictures uh, the unity that we have with him as individual believers and with each other in a common faith. He also intended this to be a reminder that he is with us even until the end of the age. Paul describes this mystery in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 17. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. These physical elements correspond, they they represent the spiritual relationship that exists between Jesus and his people. It's not as if the bread or the cup turn into the actual body and blood of Christ, for he was sacrificed once for sin and we are united to him by faith. Still, these, these physical elements have a way of representing the effective work of Christ and the relationship that we have with him. So this is an important act of responding in faith to the, the, the faith that Christ has, been, has called us to if we believe in him. So my encouragement to, the, to you as we prepare ourselves to receive these elements is to just let this supper be a reminder to you that we serve a God who never fails his promises. Let it be a reminder of Jesus' commission to his church and his promise that he will be with us to the very end of the age. Now, Jesus gave the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be celebrated by baptized believers who are trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation in remembrance of him. It is a picture of a believer's fellowship with Jesus in faith, participating in his death, and in his life. So if you're not submitting, if you're not trusting in Jesus and submitting to him as your Lord and Savior today, so if you have not been united to him by faith and you have not followed him in baptism, then this ordinance is not for you. We're so glad that you are here, but we urge you to take this time to consider your own need for Christ and to pursue him in prayer. Uh, Jesus came to the earth to serve and not to be served. And he calls us to live in service and humility with one another. So this morning, um, instead of having everyone come to the front, if you'll just remain in your seats as the elements are passed out to you, and we just ask you that you use this time to consider Jesus' service and to prepare your hearts as you receive the elements. Uh, As you receive the bread this morning, take time to consider the body of Jesus that was broken for your sin. He took the judgment that you and I deserve so that you and I might be made right with God. And then go ahead and take that bread as a symbol of your own individual unity with Jesus. 
Uh, when it time, comes time to take the juice, it's kind of become our tradition to wait and to take that together as the symbol of, of the covenant that unites us to him and to one another as his church, a covenant that was bought by the shedding of his own blood. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we come to you this morning uh, deeply impressed with the truths of your word and with the promise of the, and the unity we have with you. I pray, Father, that as we follow in obedience the, the, uh, and, and observe these ordinances that you have uh, provided for us and called us to in Jesus, that their significance would not be lost on us. I pray, Father, that your spirit would make this a weighty and wonderful thing, and that as we consider the excellence of the sacrifice of Christ, that our hope would be refreshed and our faith would be renewed, and that as we testify to the faith that lives in us, others would be encouraged as well. And I pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 20, verse 23 and 24, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The author of Hebrews, writing about um, the significance of Jesus' sacrifice, says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we consider the great payment of Christ and the covenant that was purchased at the cost of his own blood, we just want to exalt you as our Savior and our Lord. 
I pray, Father, that the covenant that you have called us to, those, those promises that you have given us, that we would hold fast to them and that you would deliver us as we know you will unto that day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the way you have given us these physical reminders of the spiritual reality of faith and our relationship with Christ. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us and that you would give us courage as you go with us in your presence. I pray, Father, that we would not move from one place that you have not directed us and that we would not fail to go where you lead us. I pray, Father, that you would bind us to Christ tightly in the bonds of love and joy and that we would cling to him and we would cling to one another as we await the day of his return. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would uh, stand and sing the doxology with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Tim, we we have to pick up, right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's funny too. Before you even told me what the passage was going to be this week, I had already started reading Joshua. I was like, "You're kidding me! This is great. I love this Providence thing going. Let's keep it going." Uh, no,
talking about it, they wanted to sell it to one of their senior managers. They were like, well, we're interested in this. And so they were all having conversations about it. It was going to be an important event. It'll be ours, but there's obviously 